All right, let's go Colossians chapter 3. We are almost finished with our series in Colossians. We're going through line by line, verse by verse. We have creatively entitled this uh, series Colossians. (laughs) And so um, we're going to be finishing up chapter 3 and one verse into chapter 1. In case you didn't know this, the English translators of the Bible, when they put the verses, the chapters, which are the big number, and the verses, which are the little number, when they did that arrangement, uh, that was not what was originally written by the original authors of the text. And so a few times they kind of made a little mistake, or they maybe put an end of a chapter where it should have been a verse or so later, and this is one of those cases. So we're going to continue on into chapter 4. As I mentioned next week, we are going to be taking a pause in our Colossians series. We're going to give you an update on our build-out of Zoo City slash Mansour's about to be Crosspoint. Friday night, we had a bunch of men there from the church eating Jim Money's awesome barbecue and uh, worshiping and praying for that place. We are very excited about what God is going to do in that building, not because it's a nice place or not because the seats have pads, but because it will be a place for us to expand the preaching of the gospel in our city. We live in a place that is full of churches, but most of them are religious and dying. And we need churches, us being one of them, Lord willing, that is clear on the gospel, that is not for uh, self-promotion, but is for the name and fame of Jesus. And so we're going to talk to you about that next week. This week, I'm going to be preaching uh, on a portion of scripture that I think probably Uh, should have a little wick coming up from it because uh, we're going to be talking about the headship, the biblical headship of men in the home and the biblical submission of wives to their husbands. All right. Awesome. Like I said, there should be a little wick coming up because it's uh, this is this verse can be dynamite for many. Friends, this is why we believe, I believe so passionately in expositional preaching, which is basically going through a majority of the time books or long passages of the Bible, because this is not something that I would ordinarily pick out to preach on a Sunday morning, because it's, uh, well, it's, it's, first of all, it's not particularly exciting, and second of all, uh, we live in a culture that is broken and does family and life backwards, and so this is countercultural. We've got a lot to say today. So I'm going to read this passage. Even as I'm reading this passage, I believe, and we believe here at this church, that the Bible is inspired by God, that it is breathed out by Him, that it is profitable for salvation, and that it equips us for works for Jesus. So even as I'm reading it, I believe that the Holy Spirit will seize our hearts. I'm going to read it, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to make three points. Let's read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Through first, or chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I have three quick points, and we're going to do some unpacking of those three points. Let me give you those three points, and then I'm going to pray. Point number one is that our home life should be a display of the gospel. Our home life should be a display of the gospel. Point number two is that our work life should be a display of the gospel. Our work life should be a display of the gospel. Point number three, which sums it all up, our whole life. In fact, the title of the message today, whatever you do, whatever you do should be a display of of the gospel. Well, those are very simple statements, but they need much, much unpacking this morning. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we do thank you for how good you are to us. We, we are distracted, self-absorbed Americans who need the power of the Holy Spirit now to come and make Jesus clear to us. Father, we live in a turbulent world. There's people in Tennessee that are uh, just ravaged by the floodwaters and people in the Gulf of Mexico that are uh, just ravaged by this oil spill. God, we pray for both of those regions and those communities and ask God that even in your providence and sovereignty that you would bring good out of this terrible situation for your glory. God, we, we are a nation at war on two fronts, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and men and women from this church are serving on the behalf of our country there. God, we do pray again for Luke Wolf and ask God that you would bless him and bring him home quickly and safely. We pray for Amy Stefanata and Nick Prevett and Dave Jeffrey and Johnny Boxdance and Bob Landig serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. God, be with Amy as she waits for Bob's return. And Lord, give our political leaders wisdom. We know that America is by far from being a perfect and righteous nation, but even in our sin, you use us as a nation to execute your righteousness here in the world. So God, would you help us? Would you give our politicians wisdom and would you bless our men and women? And now, God, we are gathered together in this room with anxieties and fears and insecurities and distractions and self-absorption and sin. And we also live in a world where family and, and home life and marriage is broken. And we digest sitcoms and TV and media that leads us and lures us away, but yet your word calls us to live in a way that honors Christ and glorifies you and is ultimately for our joy. So we need help this morning, Jesus. 
We need help, Father. We need help, Holy Spirit. So would you come now and would you draw a straight line with this crooked stick? And God, even as I'm preaching on these things, I confess my hypocrisy. Lord, as I read over this this week and as I prayed and as I prepared, I was well aware of my sin as a husband and a father. And I need your grace today even to deliver this without weeping over the sin in my own life. And so God, as we preach these words, would you simultaneously give us the dual blessing of conviction but yet hope in your grace. And God, I pray that if there be anybody in this room, and I am certain that there is, that does not know Jesus as their Savior, God, would you cause them to be born again by the living and abiding Word of God? And God, for the Christian that is in this room, that has repented and believed in Jesus and knows you, that is down and discouraged, God, would you encourage them even as your Word hits them hard and fast? And God, I pray that as we preach from this written word, that the eternal word, Jesus, would stand forth and that we would see and savor Christ. God, this is not a message about marriage and parenting. This is ultimately a message about Jesus and his glory. So God, would we see him and savor him and take our joy and pleasure in the all-beautiful and lovely King of the universe, Jesus. And it's in that name I pray. Amen. Point number one, our home life should be a display of the gospel. Marriage, clearly, friends, is to be a reflection of Christ's relationship with the church. Paul writes here to the Colossians and he tells them that husbands should love their wives, that wives should submit to their husbands. But let me go back to Ephesians, which is just a book over, Ephesians chapter 5, and read you a passage, a little bit of a lengthy passage, but I want to read it to you in Ephesians 5 that really gives clarity to why God created marriage and what marriage should look like. And as I'm reading this, and as we're talking about husbands and wives and parenting, I want to encourage us, if you, have, if you find yourself lacking in this area, I want to bring grace to you today. And if, you, if it becomes difficult for you at any point during the message to be sitting next to the one that you are currently failing being your spouse first of all wives don't elbow or give the look to the husband right now like yeah i mean don't 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 do that that is not helpful but i want to encourage you that as we preach these things or if you're not married today and you feel like this may not be relevant to you or if you are divorced here today i want to encourage you that there is grace in christ this is something that as a church we need to handle And we need to handle well. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So right there he's saying that the husband should be the head, just as Christ is the head of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Listen to this, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, listen. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Listen now. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so what Paul is saying here is that the relationship between a man and a woman mysteriously should echo, should image, should reflect the relationship between Jesus and the church. And so we have a couple questions then. How or what do we mean by biblical male headship? Well, before we get into that, let me dispel a couple misperceptions that are often bantied about, bantered about in popular culture. First, uh, misperception. I don't have these on the screen, but all of these notes that we will have that I'm going through today will be up on the website uh, by tomorrow afternoon, and we'll have some uh, of the notes on the screen. But if you miss anything or you just don't want to write down or feel that pressure, all this is going to be on the website. But first, let's dispel some misperceptions about what male headship is in the home. First, husbands are never commanded to rule their wives, but to love them. Men are never commanded to rule or lord their authority over their wives, but to love them. Secondly, headship is never portrayed in Scripture as a means of self-satisfaction. This is not, you don't get a wife so that she can serve you and meet your needs. That's the antithesis of what marriage is. You take a wife so that you might serve her. Three, headship is not the power of a superior over an inferior. But nevertheless, God has given us a design for his glory and our joy. So let me give you a working definition of biblical male headship in the home. And and by the way, so you can take this for what it's worth, I came up with this. So again, take that for what it's worth. We have it up here on the screen. Male headship is God's biblical design for order. I think we have it on the screen. Maybe we don't. It'll be on the notes. Male headship, there it is, is God's biblical design for order, security, and blessing in which women are not lowered or made to be subordinates, but instead are served, cherished, respected, protected, and encouraged to become all that God intends. That's so good. I I think I'm going to read it again. (laughs) Male headship is God's biblical design for order, security, and blessing in which women are not lowered or made to be subordinates, but instead are served, cherished, respected, protected, and encouraged to become all that God intends. And the way that God intends that to happen, the portal, the the conduit through which God intends that to happen is the headship and the Christ-like leadership of a man and his wife. And so men, the charge here today is that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. How do you do that? I have three thoughts from that verse we just read in Ephesians chapter 5. Men, we are to love our wives first, just as Jesus loved us. The Bible says in numerous places that we love him because he first loved us. We did not make our way to Jesus and get ourselves to a place where we were presentable enough that we became lovely to him. In our spiritual death and sin and rebellion, he came to us. Likewise, men are saddled with the biblical responsibility to be the initiators in their love of the wife. 
So men, if you are waiting for your wife to start acting a certain way, and then you will start treating her well, you are going 180 degrees opposite of what the Bible commands you to do. It's not if your wife does this, then I will do this. If she gives me more of this, then I will start treating her well. You are to love your wife first. I don't care if she is a drip of water and a nagging hag. You are to love her like Christ loved the church. And let me tell you this, boys. Even if your wife is tough and you are righteous, the gap between you and your wife is infinitesimally smaller than the gap between us and Christ. And in spite of that, he loved us first. We are to love our wives first. Secondly, we are to love our wives sacrificially. I think about even my continued self-absorption in my interaction with my wife, and I think about how often she is the one sacrificing as we've been planting this church for the past five years and the numerous sacrifices that she has made for this church and for me, I cannot count. But Jesus loved the church sacrificially. He could have lorded his authority over us. After all, he is the creator of the universe. He could have commanded us. He could have beat us into submission. But he lays down his life for the church. Likewise, men, we are to lay down our life for our wives. We are to prefer their preference. We are to give them. We are to give them preference. We are to sacrifice time and resources and pleasure so that they might so that they might become who they are intended to be in Christ. Just ask you a question, men, and I ask myself this question. Who is the one who always has to give in in your marriage? Is it you or is it your wife? Is she the one who's always sacrificing? Is she the one who's always taking up the slack, always taking care of the kids, always picking up, always, always, always? Or are you sacrificing at all? Jesus sacrificed for his bride. We should sacrifice for our. And this one is so near and dear to my heart in this culture where love is a contract and not a covenant. He loved the church permanently. So men, we should love our wives permanently. I realize that there are a few biblical exceptions for divorce. But one, really, sexual infidelity and desertion. I realize that some of you may be divorced because of those things and some of you may not be divorced because of those things. And I'm not here to preach about divorce and remarriage. If you are divorced, there's grace in Jesus. There's grace in Jesus. Even if your divorce is an unbiblical one, there's grace in Jesus. You repent and believe in the gospel, there's grace in Jesus. But let me tell you something, friends. As far as I see it biblically, there I will never leave my wife. And she needs to hear that over and over and over again. I will never leave you, no matter what happens. Love is permanent. I love her unconditionally forever. That's how Jesus loves his church. That's how Jesus loves me and you if you're a Christian. He will never leave us. And I will never leave her. I don't care what the circumstances are. Your wives need to hear that over and over and over again. Men, if there is a place deep down in your wife's heart where she feels like if she does not perform or become the woman that you, seek, you want her deep down inside to be, that you may walk someday, you need to stop everything in your life and look into your wife's heart and eyes and assure her that you will love her as Christ loves the church unconditionally, permanently, forever. 
Women need that. And men, if you don't know that she knows that, then make her know that. And if that's not settled in your heart, then come, brother. Repent and believe. Be prayed for. Be encouraged. Find grace in Jesus. But pray to God for that type of love for your wife. He loves us first. He loves us sacrificially. He loves us permanently. That is male headship. The reality is, is that that doesn't happen a lot. And so now the question is, how should a wife submit to her husband, especially when he is not currently leading well? Okay, so let me give you some thoughts, some tips about how women, you can encourage godly leadership in your husband. First, let me encourage you to compensate because you have to, right? I mean, somebody's got to give the children a bath (laughs) somebody's got to feed them somebody's got to put them to bed somebody's got to get them ready for school somebody's got to pay the bills somebody's got to clean up somebody's got to pick up the underwear strewn all over the house somebody's got to do it somebody's got to read the bible to the child somebody's got to pray for them so let me encourage you to compensate for your husband's lack currently and this is hard compensate without controlling what happens a lot of times and i understand listen i understand because his husband's so sorry you just have to do it all it's just easier for you to do it and what happens is deep down inside he realizes he feels guilt about that and you can in the way that you compensate and 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 take over where he should be leading do it with a frustration and an anger towards him that sort of says, I'll just do it. I'm just going to do it. And you just kind of with a little bit of a bad attitude. And believe me, sister, I understand that bad attitude. But what happens is, is you just take control of it. And it, it's a situation where the gap widens and widens and widens because he just becomes okay with you being the leader in the relationship. And that is terrible for your marriage. It's terrible for your children. It's terrible for your heart. And it's terrible for his. Now listen, I understand. I, I want to slap him too. <laughs> but but it's not helpful when you when you... Take too much control. And so how do you not do that? Well, here's three things you can do. The next couple things on this list. Ask him. You have to do this gently and strategically. Ask him how you can pray for him. Even if he is showing very little interest in spiritual things, but he just comes to church, he's kind of a bump on a log, and he doesn't, he does not clicked in yet, just ask him. Not in a super spiritual, goofy, strange sort of way. Just ask him, honey... How can I pray for you? And then maybe don't pray right there for him with some super spiritual long prayer with a bunch of long words that he might not be able to, you know, don't push him away, but how can I pray for you? Or if the opportunity is right, then you pray for him. Men are frustrated, men are insecure, and most men are wondering whether or not they have what it takes. And for them to know that their wife is praying for them would be a tremendous blessing to them. So ask him how you can pray for him. Three, ask him... For his prayers for you, but do it gently. Ask him to pray for you. And men, in the coming weeks, if your wife asks you that and you give her the cold shoulder, or you watch the third edition of Sports Center that you've already seen twice that day, or if you go out and do some stupid recreation thing and you do not look your wife in the eye, you are missing a road sign that is over the interstate, brother. I can't help you anything other than right now to say if in the coming hours and weeks your, says, your wife says for the first time, honey, can, I, can you pray for me? If you don't stop, if you don't cancel Christmas, look her in the eyes and take her seriously. You are missing the boat, brother. The train is leaving the station. You better start running and jump on that thing. 
And when your wife says, can I, how can, can you pray for me? What you do, brothers, do not overcook it, brother. Don't make it super spiritual. Don't try and pray like I pray or rental pray. No, look, we could, we could bring Billy Graham into your household and have him pray for your wife, and he doesn't have the authority that you do in your house. And so you don't have to pray some long-winded, ecclesiastical, religious-sounding prayer. Put your hands on her shoulder and say, Lord, bless my wife. There is more power in those three or four words coming out of the mouth of a husband than there is any power in my prayer or, or Billy Graham's prayer or the Apostle Paul's prayer for your house because you are the head of that house, not me, not Billy, not Paul. Bless my wife, Jesus. Amen. <laughs> if you can't do that, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know how else I can help you. Ask for his prayers gently. And then fourthly, wives, do, it, do this as gently as you can. Ask for his input and leadership. And if he doesn't respond quite like you want him to do that first time, continue to gently and persistently ask for his input and leadership. Don't stack up the study manuals from the eight Bible studies that you're going to on the bedstand and be passively aggressive towards him because he's not studying the Bible, and you are. That doesn't help. I'm glad that you are studying the Bible. But when he senses that he can't catch up to you, it is catastrophic for the atmosphere, the spiritual atmosphere of a marriage. And so gently ask for his input and leadership. Two or three words from your seemingly less than spiritual husband is far better for your soul than the long, deep spiritual prayer of your Bible study leader. Selah. All right. So that's how wives can encourage their husband's leadership. Well, let's go back and read. You guys still with me? All right, I feel some nervous twitching going on in the room. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 18, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. What does that mean? We don't have time to unpack all of this, but listen to me. I think there's two applications here, because many of us have parents that are not Christians, or maybe some of us have parents that are Christians, but they're kind of goofy and they kind of have some crazy ideas. If you are an adult child of... A, if you're an adult person and you're grown up and you're interacting with a parent that is difficult, I think that you should do your best to honor them and love them. Of course, the Bible does not call us to obey our parents if our parents are encouraging us to break a biblical command. If they're calling you away from Christ, of course you disobey them. But in matters of preference and in honoring them, we lay down our preferences to honor our parents. And so with an older parent who's maybe got some different ideas, you be as gentle and as respecting as you possibly can be. But what I want to drill down mostly on is younger children who are still living at home, who are under the authority of their parents. Again, if they're calling you or trying to encourage you to do something that is directly against God's word, of course you don't obey them. You obey the Bible. But in 99.9% of the cases where you deal with a parent who may have a preference that is different from yours, you young person that lives at home, I don't care what that preference is. I don't care how nerdy or goofy or old-fashioned your dad is. I don't care if he wears colored socks all the way up to his knees with shorts on while he waters the yard, while he's wearing you know knickers. I don't care. 
I don't care how goofy he is. If you are living under his authority, submitting to his preference, even if it's wrong, his preference now, not, not a biblical command, submitting to his preference is better for your soul in the long run than being proven right and causing disruption in that home. Submitting to your dad's preference, even if it's old-fashioned, goofy, crotchety, or just weird, is better for your soul than causing disruption in the family. Because Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, the fifth commandment of the ten, these are the big ten, says, honor your father and mother. Live in a respecting way. I think is what that means. Give them, give them preference so that it might go well with you in the days that God is giving you on this earth. That's how you do it if you're a child. And dads, what does it mean to not provoke your children? It goes on to say, fathers, verse 21, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Again, we could preach a whole sermon on this. I just think that the big thing here is that dads, we should be consistent. Try your best to be the same guy at home that you are in public. Men, listen to me. Read the Bible to your children. Read the Bible to your children. Don't, don't, don't allocate that solely to your wife. Of course, wives, women, moms, read the Bible to your children. Of course, do that. But husbands, don't let it only come from mom. You also read the Bible for your children. And men, pray for your children. Put your hands on your boys and girls and pray for them. And listen to me for just a moment about how to correctly, I believe, pray for your kids. We live in a youth culture, in a parenting culture that is obsessed with the self-esteem of our children. And I think that is a terrible message to send. I'm not saying we don't want our kids to have good self-esteem. But do you know that the biblical truth is, is that we are all born sinners. Your little boys and girls that are just little cute Susie and Bobby, they are sinners that need to repent and believe and be saved. And so if all we've done all of their life is tell them how great they are, and then all of a sudden they go to a youth camp or they, they come to kids' church and they hear me screaming and spitting and tell them how they need to believe in Jesus because they are a sinner, it's, it's, it's incongruent. They're like, wait a minute. I mean, my daddy prayed with me. I mean, I'm, I'm just the best guy in the world. I mean, yeah, I can do anything. And now I'm being told that I need to repent and believe. I'm not a sinner. And by this culture of parental self-esteem, we counteract the biblical witness of the gospel that says that we need to realize that we, even as good moral Americans, are lost and without hope, and we need Jesus to save us from our sin or our morality. And I'm not saying you breathe down hellfire on your kid when you're praying with them. Lord Jesus, let Jacob and Joseph know that the... You know, don't read Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God to him every night. Well, actually, that might be a pretty good idea. But yeah, dangling over the pits of hell. But as you pray, pray the gospel to him. So here's how I pray for my children at night. I say, Lord, thank you for my boys and my little girl. Father, we have all rebelled against you. And our only hope is Christ. And God, you would be just and right to pour out your punishment on us, even good Americans like us. But you, in your grace, poured out the punishment that should have been mine, the punishment that should have been Joseph's and Jacob's and Arabella's and Abraham's. 
You poured it out on Jesus for us. And you say that whoever will repent and believe and turn and trust in Christ will be saved. So I pray, God, that that message would drill down deep into the heart of Jacob and Joseph and Bella and Abe. I, of course, may pray it a little bit more in kid-friendly language. But I pray and I confess sin. And I make it clear that they need a Savior. And I pray that they will turn and trust Him and follow Him all the days of their life. And then I prayed the sweet things too. And God, give him a good day at school tomorrow. And especially for Bella, let her stay in her bed all night long. <laughs> please, Jesus, please. <laughs> Dads, be consistent. Read the Bible occasionally. Don't be a legalist. As often as you can, read the Bible to your children and pray the gospel for your children. If you don't know the gospel or if you need further help in that, friends, I would be more than glad to take you to lunch, to meet you at our offices at the point, to talk to you today about what the gospel is and some very easy and strategic ways to pray that for your children. That is what I am here for. I would love to do that for you. And friends, if you are sensing conviction right now, and right now you're just getting kind of sweaty and uncomfortable because you realize this is not the case in your life, let me share with you something that I quote to myself weekly. It is my favorite quote outside of the Scripture. And this was a quote offered by a man named Richard Sibbs, who was a great Puritan English pastor in the late 1500s and early 1600s. He said that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And that is so good and so true because it echoes the truth of Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 that says where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. So dads, if you have failed it, if you have done a face plant, if you have absolutely tanked this part of your life, there is more mercy in Christ than there is failure in you. Repent and believe and be encouraged and take hold of what God is calling you to do right now. Two more points very quickly. That's point number one. Our home life should be a display of the gospel. Two, our work life should be a display of the gospel. Let me just handle this real quickly. Paul says in verse 22, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Just let me handle real quickly. Why does Paul not condemn slavery uh, in the New Testament? Well, you need to understand that the Bible is not written as a sort of political or societal or governmental manifesto. He's not really, the purpose of the Bible primarily is not to be or address the morality of a broken culture. Now, of course, friends, we know that slavery, the subjugation of one man under another, is a sin and straight from the pits of hell and absolutely runs counter to the gospel. And so you may wonder, why would Paul seem to acquiesce to that point and address slaves and just tell them to obey their earthly masters? Well, they are citizens of a Roman Empire, and Paul's not trying to overthrow the Roman Empire in his letter to the Colossians. He is trying to capture the human heart. He's not concerned primarily with the morality of a society. He's concerned with the salvation of individual souls. And so Paul is not going after slavery in that. But I will reference you to the small little letter of Philemon in the New Testament where Paul writes a Christian slave owner named Philemon about one of his former slaves who has escaped 
now was with Paul when he was in prison, and now Paul is sending him back. His name is Onesimus. And he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, his Christian slave owner, and he tells Philemon, I now entreat you, brother, to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. And so Paul does address slavery, but that's not what's in view here now. What Paul, I believe, is saying to these people is live in the state that you are in a way that glorifies God. And so when we read slaves, I think we can extrapolate that and apply it to our lives without doing damage to the Bible or the truth there by saying that we as workers, we as people that live in modern day America should obey in everything those who are our earthly bosses, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So a couple things here about what it means to display the gospel in our work life. We should see our work as mission. How do you do that? We are in where we are at, the place that we are at in life because God has us there. Let me read to you a scripture in Acts chapter 17. I'll make these next few points quickly. Click in, hang with me. And we will be landing this plane in a second. Acts chapter 17, verse 24. This is what Paul says. He says, the God, or actually Luke is writing this, but Paul is giving the speech. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind, that includes the people that live in Rajasthan, India, and the people that live in Columbus, Georgia, and Harris County. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Listen to this. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each one of us. And so what that's saying is, is that in 1979, when I took a paper route for the Imperial Valley Press, and I would beat down that little chihuahua, nasty little dog, that paper route got allotted for somehow to bring me into this place in life where I would long for Him. And when I was in the United States Army and I was stationed at Fort Benning, that that happened so that I would long for God. And then when I went to work at a church, and then I went to work for a pharmaceutical company for a little while, that was so that I would long for God. And that I would be a witness for God in that place that He pre-allotted and determined before time began so that I would be a witness in that place. So if you work at Aflac, if you work at Synovus, or Tesis, or the Muskogee County School District, or wherever you work, that has been pre-allotted according to the Scripture. That boundary that you are dwelling in is set up by God for this time so that you might display Christ in a place that is lost and dark. But the sad testimony is, is that if you read Facebook, and yes, I am a Facebook stalker. I confess it right now, I'm a ninja Facebook stalker. And if you, if you were to read some of the updates, the stati updates of confessing Christians on Facebook about how they view their job and their work week, it would depress you. Another Monday! It's like Monday afternoon at 3 o'clock. Can't wait till Friday! I hate it here! Praise Jesus! <laughs> And I bet you everybody around you hates it too. 
you were given that job as uncomfortable or as difficult as it may be so that there in that place where everybody else is hopeless might see somebody who has hope might turn and trust in Jesus realize that we are in a culture that's fallen and in this dark place God drops spiritual light bulbs that should never go out to bring light into a dark place that's why you have the job that you have that doesn't mean that if it's a bad situation that you need to stay there forever but you're there to reflect Jesus not just get a paycheck you are there to reflect Jesus not just get a paycheck and then this brings us to our last point our home lives should display the gospel and our work lives should display the gospel then the natural progression and assumption is that our whole lives whatever we do whatever whatever we do should be a display of the gospel for the christian compartmentalization kills for the christian compartmentalization of life kills there's no such thing as private faith i need to make an individual confession of who christ is in my life and i need to believe him as an individual but there's no such thing as a private life of faith (laughs) there's no such thing as secular or christian in a christian's life secular or spiritual everything is spiritual first corinthians chapter 10 verse 31 paul says and this is one of my favorite bible verses he says so whatever you eat or drink whatever it is do it all for the glory of god so whether you work there or there, whether you do this or that, whether you recreate or whether you make love or whether you spend money or whether you buy clothes or whether you watch TV or whether you golf or whether you sit on the couch or whether you discipline your children or whether you argue with your spouse or whether you do whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever, 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 whatever. That word actually started in the valley in California where I'm from. Whatever, 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 whatever. Whatever, fill in the blank, anything, breathe, sleep, wake up, exercise, eat. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What a comprehensive statement about the Christian life. I hope now, as I'm about to land this plane, that you have come to realize that this is impossible. Messages like this are very The the, the danger in preaching messages like this where there are direct commands from Paul to do this and don't do this. What it does to the religiously proud southern Christian Bible Belt cultural Christian nominal Christian grew up in church but never really never really never really know Jesus heart is it sends us scurrying off to do our little lists. I've been taking. Oh, let's love first. Love. Okay. So Monday, I'm going to love first. Love sacrificially. I'm going to love permanently. So I'm going to do this. I'm going I'm to how to pray. Husband, will you pray for me? So we do all these little lists. And what that does is when we have a list that we can check off, it fuels our religious heart. But ultimately, what today is about is not how to be a better husband or how to be a better wife or how to be an obedient child when you got a weird dad. What today is about is the gospel of grace. 
And here's the gospel of grace. You can't do it. You can't do it. First of all, if you're not a Christian, the Bible says that your rebellion, your sin against God has done more than neutralize you or make you unhappy. It has killed you. You are spiritually dead. And the command of the Bible is that you, friend, repent and believe. Those are two biblical words that mean turn from self-worship, self-reliance, self-trust, and trust in what Jesus did on the cross alone for your right standing with your Creator. Now, if you are savvy and you're paying attention, you're saying, if I'm spiritually dead, how can I turn and trust? Because dead people can't do anything. Aha, you're right. And if you're starting to figure that out, I think that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is getting a hold of you right now. But here's the beauty about the power of the Gospel. That the Gospel, the call, the very... The very gospel itself creates what it commands. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 that the gospel is itself the power of God for salvation. So I'm not asking you to do better. I'm not asking you to go do a little list or be a better husband or tuck in your shirt or watch less TV or be gentler with your spouse. If you're not a Christian, your only hope is to turn and trust, repent and believe. And if you are hearing this right now, I believe that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is right now bringing life to your heart. And what do little babies that have just been born do? They breathe. And that breath is faith that was given to you by God. And that faith turns from self-reliance and trusts in Jesus. And so right now, if you're hearing, as Jesus says in the Gospels, to him who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you're hearing me right now, and you are becoming aware of the fact that you are probably not a Christian, and you are even conscious of that fact, and you are feeling convicted, and you're wondering about where you are with God, I believe that is evidence that God is causing you to be born again, as First Peter says. As the song we sang, Ephesians 2 says, that He made us alive. He's making you alive right now. Turn and trust. Turn and trust. Turn and trust in Jesus. The gospel creates what it commands. Turn and trust in Jesus. And when you do that, you become His. You become purchased. You become justified. And in that moment, instantly, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, that He takes away your sin, and then He gives you His character. So literally, what was not there before you believed is there now. It is, it is the person and work and imputed righteousness of Jesus. And now, not in perfection, But now, in process, and in what the Bible calls sanctification, you now have the ability to begin to live for Him. Not because you can do better, because Jesus made you born again and He gave you His character. Now, you can begin to treat your wife like He treated the church. What you need to do is get around people who are struggling to do that. You need to read your Bible. You need to worship Jesus with other Christians And you need to let that new life in you grow. And you need to feed it with Scripture and community and worship and prayer. And if you need help on how to do that, if you sense that right now you are becoming a Christian and that you are turning and trusting, I implore you, please just come talk to me after church. We don't have you raise your hand. 
We don't dupe you into self-confidence by having you repeat a prayer. I think those things are well-intended, but they can be very, very unhelpful ultimately because you don't become a Christian just by repeating a prayer after somebody. You become a Christian by repenting and believing in Jesus. You can do that right now. Finally, if you're a Christian, be encouraged. Be encouraged. It's the same grace that saved you. Same grace and indwelling power of the Spirit of God that empowers you now to live more like Jesus. To live more like Jesus. So that in our homes, in our work, whatever we do, we display the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. And I thank you for these people in this room that I love very, very much. Again, God, I am well aware of my own hypocrisy, and so I know that I am a Christian, but I am in need of grace. And so, Jesus, I repent as a husband and as a father in areas that I still fall very short. I pray that I would love Jennifer with an initiating love that comes first. Before she does anything for me, I pray that I would love her first. I pray that I would lay down my life for her and my children. And I pray that she and they would know that I will love them forever and that I will never leave her. Lord, drill that down into the hearts of some husbands in here today. If they're not there, God, give them grace. There, as Brother Sib said, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And Lord, encourage the wives who are in a less than ideal situation. God, wrap them with your loving arms. Give them the strange and unusual, unusual but beautiful combination of gentle grace, persistent, strong, fiercely feminine, courageous grace to lead, compensate, but not dominate. That you might use these sisters as a vessel towards bringing their husbands in to what you intend for that home to be. Do that, God, I pray. We can only do that by your grace. We are not wise enough for that. And then, God, if there be anybody in this room today, I pray that they would not leave this place saying, oh, well, that was a nice little message about marriage. Maybe I'll try and do some of that stuff. God, if that's it, oh, Jesus, they've missed the point. So would you help them realize that ultimately what they do need to do right now is turn and trust in Jesus. And whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So, God, would you blow the wind of the Spirit into their hearts? Would you bring a dead heart alive? Would you make them alive? Would you cause them to be born again by the living and abiding word of God? And would that brother or sister turn and trust in Jesus right now that they would be justified and they can begin the lifelong process of displaying the gospel? I pray these things in the good and strong, sovereign, gracious, loving name of Jesus, our King. Amen.